We all have feelings and thoughts about capitalism and how good it is or how bad it is. Our guest on today's Keeping Democracy Alive has a new book out called Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. Ought to be interesting. Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. One of our greatest presidents, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, forcefully insisted that capitalism must be made to serve the common good. The picture Mm -hmm. of we the people serving corporate capitalism as we do today is 180 degree opposite of Roosevelt's good vision. He prioritized the public good on top of simple market forces in the 1930s and in doing so, saved capitalism from itself. How powerful over the rest of us, the people Roosevelt so wanted capitalism to serve, is the current system of taxation and the world of finance's determination to severely limit public participation in capital growth. Is this the best we can do? Today, we can all see that wealthy persons matter more than everyone else, that they possess greater rights have a uh, greater voice and and that our economy should be designed to always expand their portfolios and serve them. Well, a new book asks, can the current top-tier benefiting system be reformed and made fair? Is the current worship of an untethered market as the only legitimate force uh, permanent? Or might John Maynard Keynes' vision of a capitalist system that serves to maintain fairness and a large and solid middle class possible? Our guest on today's Keeping Democracy Alive is Marjorie Kelly, whose new book is titled Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. And that's crises, plural. Marjorie Kelly is a distinguished senior fellow at the Democracy Collaborative, a nonprofit working to catalyze a democratic economy. What a concept. She is a leading theorist in democratic economy design, including next generation enterprise, employee ownership, and impact investing, and was named by Fast Company one of the 15 people at the forefront of reinventing our economic system. Kelly is the author of three previous books, including the Divine Right of Capital, I love that title, <laughs> chosen as a favorite by Wharton School faculty. She was also co-founder and for 20 years president of Business Ethics Magazine. Again, what a concept. Kelly's writings have uh, appeared in uh, many publications, including the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Stanford Social Innovation Review, New England Law Review, Boston Globe, Yes, and San Francisco Chronicle. So she's not your stereotypical, idealistic, doctrinaire, Marxist, anti-capitalist. Indeed, Kelly <laughs> <laughs> Kelly has deep roots in the business world. Thank you so much for being with us today. And it's good to have this uh, informed uh, point of view who's uh, done some homework and, and looking at the details of, of problems. And uh, is one of my favorite quotes from H.L. Mencken is, uh, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution. And it's wrong. Mm. And it's wrong. There are no simple solutions. 
So thank you for being with us. And please tell us the genesis of this book. How did you come to write it? And who is the target audience? The book is uh, Wealth Supremacy. Bert, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's a treat to be here. Yeah, I, I would say this book has been 30 years in the working. <clears throat> you know, I've done, I've done three previous books uh, looking at capitalism and how can it be redesigned in, in a deep way. And, you know, you mentioned how I, I've been active in employee ownership and in, impact investing and our organization um, we developed a form of economic development, which we call community wealth building. And that's mm. catching on in places like Amsterdam and Chicago and, and Cleveland, where we built uh, three evergreen, we helped design and develop three, three worker owned co-ops uh, supported by large anchor institutions, like a big, a big laundry uh, that does all the laundry for Cleveland clinic. And, and it's hundred percent owned by, about a couple hundred workers. So, you know, I've been working on positive stuff, Bert, for decades. And as a journalist, you know, tracking the work of so many visionaries who are, really are reinventing the economy for the public good. But I've become discouraged. We're losing ground faster than we're gaining it. And and what I've come to see is that if if we only work for the positive, and that's what I've been trying to do for decades, mm-hmm. then what we build will be devoured. It will it will be taken down. We used to have a network of community owned banks and they got gobbled up into Bank of America and, and Citigroup and and uh, uh, Cleveland had uh, Shore Bank Cleveland. That was our CEO at Democracy Collaborative, Stephanie McHenry, was the president of Short Bank Cleveland, and they did good loans in their uh, disadvantaged community in Cleveland, mostly you know, people of color. And then uh, leading up to 2008, predatory capital moved mm. in. It put predatory loans on those same homes and almost brought down the global economy. And Short Bank Cleveland and Short Bank overall was destroyed in the process. So, you know, I've seen we have to turn and challenge the core aim of the system, which is to maximize gains for capital, to make the wealthy more and more wealthy. Until we take that on, Bert, mm-hmm. I think that, that our efforts are, are doomed to fail. And I do find it interesting. I've, I've, been, I've been curious as to what the, the right wing some news media call them conservative. They're not conservative. They're right wing. What they mean by the <laughs> word freedom, and I think what they mean by the word freedom is the freedom for the few super wealthy to do whatever the hell they want without any restrictions at all. That's the limits of what they mean by freedom. But what? Let me let me ask you about. Mm-hmm. Well, go ahead. Let me respond to that. Well, you know, you you're right about that, and. Uh, there's this fascinating book called Globalist by this guy Slobodian, this historian, and he says, you know, in the global economy, the the citizens of the global economy are corporations and investors. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> they have rights that go abroad and transcend boundaries, but the rest of it, our rights, uh, you know, don't don't pass the border. Environmental rights, uh, human rights, worker rights, all of those are stripped out. Like there was there was an example. It was in in Italy where they passed a law saying you can't do offshore drilling 
for oil. And an oil company sued them and said, and, and said we have lost hundreds of millions in in future profits. And so and they won. So so and they got 33 times the amount that they had invested. So you have corporations having more rights than we the uh-huh. people. And yeah, that's what freedom means in, in this economy. And to people like Franklin Roosevelt, freedom meant freedom for the rest of us for the, the, the common good that we all are citizens equally, at least I think he meant that. And talk about the meaning of words. F- financialization, it's, it's not a word you hear every day. What, what do we mean by the word financialization? And, and what are the problems of financialization in our overall economy? You know, this is a huge problem, Bert, and, and you're right. It's largely invisible. We're not talking about it. <clears throat> it's a problem as big as climate change, but much more invisible. When, when I grew up in the 1950s, financial assets were roughly the same size as gross domestic product. You know, so, you know, so GDP, that's the flow of income and spending. You get a paycheck, you spend it. That, that's what GDP tracks. But there's this other sphere. Let's say you have a house and the value of that house goes up in in value or you have stocks and those go up in value. That isn't that's not a flow of income, but it's 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 wealth. Right. It's financial wealth. Well, so financial wealth today in the aggregate is now five times GDP. And we don't even know how to think about that, but it, but it grows by extracting from from the rest of us. For example, these these big tech companies they hit hit a downturn in their stock price a while back. And what's the first thing they did? They threw tens of thousands of workers out of jobs because if you want to get your stock price back up, you got to boost the bottom line. That mm-hmm. means cutting expenses, and it means essentially shifting income from labor to capital. And that, that's what they did. And this happens all the time, sending jobs overseas, um, turning full-time jobs into part-time contingent, subcontract, gig-type work. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that the system systematically moves income from labor to capital. And that that is swelling financial assets and leaving the rest of us to struggle. And so financialization, and this is something that economists have warned about for decades, including economists at the International Monetary Fund are are tracking this This serious stuff by serious people. And what they're saying is at a certain point, finance gets too big. Financial assets Mm. in the hands of a few, they get too big and they become a drain on the resilience of society rather than serving the real economy they're they're tapping its strength and and, and, and reducing its resilience and that's the point we've reached Bert not serving that's an interesting uh, point yeah just tapping it and extracting from it and the title of the book is uh, Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. That's in plural. And one of the uh, crises, of which there are many, of course, is the opioid crisis. And mm-hmm. how it, in what ways might even the opioid crisis actually be part of financialization? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, you had... At one point, we had very good jobs in this economy. You had manufacturing jobs. Yes. You had people. We had a middle class, oh, right? I remember. But then, 
<laughs> I, I'm that <laughs> old. Fond, I do remember. Yes, go ahead. Sorry. It's a fond memory, right? Kind yeah. of a distant one. But then, you know, as the system did what it does, it's shifting income from labor to capital in every way that it can. You know, we saw the decimation of the middle class. G- good manufacturing jobs went overseas, <clears throat> and um, other good jobs became part-time and contingent. And so you have people who, who are desperate when there's unemployment. Well, and I'll add the other thing is that mass layoffs became a norm. That that didn't used to happen. But when I was being the editor of Business Ethics Magazine, I remember when um, um, this started to happen. General Electric, for example, was a place that would just throw tens of thousands of workers out of job, even though they were they were profitable. And this people at the time said, oh, they've broken the social contract. This was a new thing, but it has become a norm. And so what happens when you have unemployment? Uh, people become depressed. Yes. Uh, it's hard to find good jobs. There bec- there's more strife in the family. This goes even into the next generation. The children of the unemployed uh, suffer psychologically. And so what do people, people turn to uh, prescription drugs and to op- opioids? And, and uh, so, yes, you know, you're quite right that the opioid crisis does trace back to financialization in a large extent. And there was a, a recent uh, TV show uh, called uh, Dope Sick about uh, small towns. And a lot of our political problems these days are from uh, people in small towns in the overlooked Midwest uh, where jobs have left. They've gone overseas as part of financialization. Mm-hmm. And, of course, people get desperate and the, you had the uh, very profitable Purdue uh, uh, pharmaceutical coming in, and uh, hey, they made a heck of a lot of money. What the? So what's the problem? Well, the problem was a lot of people were dying. A lot of people were uh, addicted to that evil OxyContin. So it all kind of fits in. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about financialization, about the underlying threat to uh, uh, democracy, really, the fact that it's such a long way from a democratic economy. Our guest today is Marjorie Kelly, whose new book is titled Wealth Supremacy. Think about that. Wealth supremacy. That's supreme over everything else. How the extractive economy and biased rules of capitalism drive today's crises. And we mentioned the, the gross domestic product, the GDP, which is, it's, it's like the measure, but it's long been seen as a terribly inaccurate picture of the strength mm-hmm. of our national mm-hmm. economy. In what ways is it not a good picture? And what measure might be more accurate and informative and might be uh, realistic to, to switch over and use? Yes. E- ecologists have talked for some time about how GDP counts negative behavior as as a positive. You know, if you burn a house down and you have to rebuild it, well, that feeds the GDP. So that that's one way that, that it's inaccurate. But there's a bigger way, and that is that it doesn't track the growth of financial assets or financial wealth. So there's this huge phenomenon happening, which is financial assets are now five times GDP. But we don't even count that, Bert. We don't even keep keep track of that. And we also uh, don't track, well, who holds that 
who holds that wealth. Uh-huh. Um, so it's it's in few hands, and that means that it's it's spiky and it's it's prone to to crises. And then you know we when it goes down, we we bail out. We bail out the big guys, the wealthy people, and the big <laughs> banks that that cause crises. Right. So yeah, we're not looking at what's actually going on. Uh. Well, that's convenient, and it's easy to do it that way, and just to focus on the on the uh, the wealth, the uh, the wealth supremacy, and and in a world of corporate and financial accounting, materiality means what's real and important <laughs> to investors. What's included? What's overlooked? And are posted gains ever enough? Speak to us from your experience, please, on this stuff. Yeah, Bert, I, I've spent a couple of decades, I feel like I've been a spy <laughs> inside the world of business. <laughs> I mean, I come, I come from a business family. My grandfather founded Anderson Tool and Die. My, business, my father had a small business. I ran a small business for 20 years. Business Ethics Magazine was published by a small um, for-profit company. So I, I kind of know how it, how it works. And I've also tracked it as a journalist uh, for several decades. And and you look at these concepts as I do in the book. And I, I try to unpack these concepts for just, for just ordinary people. This is not a, a complicated book, but yes, you so there are various myths that really function as the operating system of the extractive economy. <clears throat> and the first one that I point to is, the, the the principle of, of maximization, the idea that mm. no amount of wealth is ever enough. Sure. You know, B- Bill Bill Gates had at one point, you know, the founder of Microsoft, at one point he had $10 billion, and you and I, ordinary people can't even count that high, you know. Uh, it, we don't, it's hard to understand $10 billion. What did he do? He invested it, and within a couple of decades, he had $300 billion. Now, that's an absurd, that's a laughable amount of money. Um, but that's how the system works, because no amount of wealth is ever enough. You invest, you get more. That's one principle. And you you pointed to another, which is the myth materiality. And this is a, a a core principle of corporate accounting and financial accounting. And what it says is if there's something that's going to impact shareholders or investors, you have to report on it. It's material. It's considered real Uh and important. And if anything else is not real Uh or important Uh unless it impacts capital. So are you trashing the environment? Are you ruining the lives of workers? Are you disempowering their community? Uh, are you capturing democracy? None of that. None of that is material. It's not real unless it impacts capital. So I, I call this a tautology of capital bias. Um, wealthy people matter. Nobody else matters. And that's actually embedded in the rules of accounting. Absolutely amazing. And I know there's, I, I don't really know much about this Austrian school of economics. I think the uh, their lead guy's name is Hayek or something like that, who, who goes along with that, that that's the only thing that counts. And it seems to be uh, that uh, so-called libertarians are buying into that, that that's the only thing that counts is the bottom line, the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Martin Luther King uh, spoke of the... 
and this is a hard word for me to even say, the thingification of the Negro. I mean, that was the word when, mm -hmm, I think when you mm -hmm. and I were growing up. Uh, that most obviously occurred under the property system of slavery. Under slavery, mm -hmm, these mm -hmm. uh, it, it, people were property. In the property system of financialization of everything, you contend that capital bias thingifies whatever it can, meaning virtually everything everything becomes mm -hmm, an object mm -hmm. for extraction. What do you mean? And how solid is that current pervasive economic argument? Does it, how effectively or not does it deal with social stability? A lot of questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, it's a terrifying concept, isn't it, to thingify people? But that's that's the mind of property. It says everything is out there. It's something that I'm going to own, and I'm going to extract as much wealth as I can from it. This happened under imperialism. Entire nations, particularly the nations of Africa, were seen as the um, possessions of European powers. And then, of course, uh, people of color, African Americans, were, became pieces of property. And right now, capitalism is thingifying life itself. I, I open the book by talking about hedge funds and, and big, big capital that's out there buying water rights. By mid-century, half half of the world population <clears throat> is going to experience a shortage of clean, fresh water. And capital looks at this, business looks at this, and says that's the biggest emerging market on earth. This is what the hedge fund uh, CEO said. And uh, Fortune magazine has said that water is going to be what oil was right. in, in, in the last century. It's going to be what creates the wealth of nations. And so capitalists out there right now wanting to own water and charge us uh, through the nose for it. And the alternative is a democratic economy that we, the people, own water. There's also a new entity, a new investment vehicle that was created in 2021. It's called the Natural Asset Company. Oh. It's on the walls. It's on the New York Stock Exchange. And they want to own all kinds of what they call ecosystem services, including coral reefs and forests oh. and farms, and monetize ecosystem services as a new asset class for investors. Now, this is terrifying. So Yikes. this would mean this would mean that big capital and the wealthy would own life itself as 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 a thing, as a thingified. <laughs> financial asset and extract as much as they can from it. Th this is where we're heading, Bert, until we, until we see what's going on and say, no, wait a second. That is not the right way to organize an economy. Yeah, and just because they can do it doesn't mean they should do it. And, and to think that they're buying up these natural assets, wow, is that ever chilling in the you know, classic it's sense? It's terrifying. Oh, uh -huh. It is terrifying. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, a, there's an, a, an example in, in London. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, back in 1980, mm. she, she take, took a lot of public assets uh, owned by government and put them into the private market, sold them off. And water systems were one of the things that she, she privatized. And Thames Water in London is owned by investors. And while their dividends were going up by 30%, meanwhile, the cost of water was going up 30%. 
by 30% for customers and, and service was degraded. And you had sewage flowing into apartment buildings in London. And there was a part of the Thames River, people started calling it Crappuccino <laughs> because it was so it was so filthy. So, you know, when you're maximizing gains for investors, often what you're doing is charging exorbitant prices to consumers and degrading service. That's what happens. Hmm. There's extraction for you. You yank it out, it's gone. Oh my goodness! Mm -hmm. It's uh, and it's it's very powerful right now, and no doubt you will not be surprised that I remain a solid supporter of Bernie Sanders and what he stands for. And I will say that during his campaigns, when he was talking about democratic socialism, right out there, democratic socialism, uh, it made me nervous. I, I heard, I've heard it said over the years that as soon as people hear the word socialism, they stop thinking. I I, uh -huh, I uh -huh. would have recommended he call what he was in favor of economic democracy. Is yeah. that what you favor? Mm -hmm. And what does that look like? And, and is there a significant difference between them? I mean, what is economic democracy? What does it mean to you? Yeah, I I also. Um... I mean, I like a lot of socialism. You need good social safety nets. You need strong labor. You need sure. public ownership of essential parts of the economy, like water, like electricity, water, yes. Yes. healthcare. So, so I think you know, there's a lot that's right in socialism. But what doesn't, what it doesn't take on, um, is re designing the DNA of corporations and capital markets. Ah. And I think that's that's where we need to go next, Bert. And because those forces, even in Europe, are, are starting to erode <clears throat> the benefits of socialism. And also, I, I reject the idea that our choices are binary, right? That it's either capitalism uh -huh. or socialism. I mean, you know, that's, why is it binary? Right. That's, that you, you know, we need, we're in the 21st century. We're in a very new world. You know, we can keep what works and remove the most extreme. I mean, we shouldn't have billionaires, right? And there, there are there, we and we certainly shouldn't have an economy designed to create billionaires. You know, you could still have private companies. You can still have uh, in investments and so on. But what we need to remove is this capital bias that says making the wealthy wealthier is the point of the entire economy. You can have worker-owned firms. You can have uh, community-owned water, 85% yes. of Americans now get their water from municipally-owned water. That's public. That's government ownership. You know, we're taught to fear government ownership. Right. It's not, there's nothing scary about it. You know, you'd rather call the mayor, or the, you know, rather than, you know, some corporation with uh, with this robocall machine, so so yeah, so we need broad based ownership. We need also a, a, a financing system where the public good, oh. the core, and those exist. I mean, you've got the Bank of North Dakota; it's owned by the state. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, and it kept that state thriving when all the big banks in two thousand eight meltdown stopped lending uh, because that bank existed to serve the people of the state not to extract from them so there we, there are various models in the democratic economy that are that are proven we have proof of concept and we can begin moving toward these and, and have an economy where the public good is at the core of, of all institutions and where ownership is is held in in broad hands 
And I think that's what at least some of America's founders were in favor of, the public good. The government should serve the public good. And I've certainly had a similar experience. It's not binary. It's not either, you know, capitalism, you know, rough, uh, unrestrained, untethered capitalism, or, you know, Stalinist socialism. No, it's not either. (laughs) It's It's not either. And I, you know, people, I think, you know, the reality is, People in America like to get rich, okay? But uh, it, when you're a billionaire, I mean, a thousand million, huh? And a multi-hundred billion, it's, I, I'm hoping that someday psychiatrists will be able to diagnose and treat that hunger that these incredibly wealthy people have for more and more and more. It's, it's not, yeah, it's not a healthy yeah. thing. But people can make money. And I think there's... People should be, in my opinion, people should be allowed to get rich, not too rich, not crazy rich, nor poor, not too poor. But people should be, you know, you know, you can't have everybody on the same level. Uh, so rich and poor, but not too much of either one, a floor and a ceiling, perhaps. And I'm reminded of Congressman Dick Gephardt, a respectable traditional Democrat, who said he favored what he called capitalism with a conscience. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing, I don't know, that's, it's different from the extractive uh, system that we're talking about now. And, and, and I, I happen to think that it, it can be, uh, you know, and I'm guessing you think that capitalism is not, I mean, it's not going to be overthrown in America. It ain't going to happen, per se. But uh, there can be changes made to it and adjustments made to it, fine tuning and, and, and make it uh, better. Your thoughts? Well, you know, capitalism is just is just a word. <clears throat> I mean, I I personally, and this is a point I make in the book, is I, I think we need to move beyond capitalism. I think capitalism needs to evolve into a next system. And it's, it's one that I call a democratic economy because, you know, I call it at one point capital hyphenism. It's a system built on bias. Only only capital has a vote inside right. corporations, right? Yes. That That's a biased governance structure. Workers could go there every day for 30 years and do its work and they don't they don't have a voice or a say that that's biased. That's that's not fair. And it's actually not efficient. Also, in investing, the purpose of investing is maximum returns to investors and don't even look at what's happening to workers or the environment or society. It's just total focus on the number, you know, in right. your investment portfolio. And you don't even see the rest of it. That's bias, Bert. And so I, I like to say, let's move beyond capitalism, this biased system. We can still have companies and investments, but the public good needs to be at their core. And at that point, I don't think it's capitalism anymore. But keep in mind, that's just a word, right? Uh, sure. I mean, you know, you don't need you don't need to be biased toward toward capital in order to have an efficient system anymore that you need to be sexist to be to be a man right i mean we learned that these biases we can get beyond them and actually be healthier and happier and and that's what i think that's what i you know i actually for 30 years bert have watched people try to make capitalism friendlier and nicer and less and less biased. I mean, I people are working in uh, socially responsible, 
investing, socially responsible business. I mean, I've, I've seen so many people trying to make this system better. And what I see is that things are getting worse, not better, because we've never taken on this core bias mm-hmm. at the heart of the system. And it, as long as we think maximum gains for capital are the point of everything or are sacred in some way, then we're in trouble. And so we need to take that on and, and, and we need the next system beyond that. Well, I think you're talking about things that people can relate to if they figure it out. It's it's not uh, real clear. It's a little bit complicated. Uh, you know, it's it's easy to just uh, see capitalism versus socialism, but that's that's it's far more complicated than that. And I know that uh, I I happen to be kind of a, a uh, enthusiast for uh, John Maynard Keynes, who had a vision of a steady economy serving real economic security for the greatest mm-hmm, number. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was it was popular for a while, but uh, tell me about how how you feel about you know what what his vision was, and you, you perhaps maybe a bit dubious of that. Uh, and I don't know if there's any real action going toward the vision that you're talking about. I mean, Bernie Sanders talked about that a bit, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, John Maynard Keynes was, was brilliant. And he said, you know, government, you don't want to uh, you know, cut, cut the government budget at a time of crisis, which is what was happening uh, during the great depression. He said, no, you know, right. we, we need to, we need to spend more and, and, and jumpstart the economy. So he was, he was a really brilliant theorist. And, and another thing he said was that um, speculation, you know, as long as speculation is a bubble on the stream, um, it's, it's not a problem. But when the economy becomes an adjunct of speculation, <laughs> then you're in yeah. trouble. And that, that's wow. the point that we've reached. The speculation is, is far more prevalent than actual uh, productive investment. I mean, the stock market, when you and I invest in IBM, that money doesn't go to IBM. It's not a productive investment that fuels research or or growth. It just, we're just trading stock from one speculator to another. And yet almost all of us are sending so much of our, our assets to, to wall street and to these big companies. And, you know, meanwhile, the, the family-owned businesses next door are starved right. for capital because we haven't built the roads that can that can finance small and medium-sized businesses, and that's where the jobs are created. So, so we need to be doing that. And you know, I think Bernie Sanders got a lot right. I like you. I wasn't comfortable with the term uh, socialism myself, but you know, Bernie, you, you know this. He used to be a, a mayor. Yes. Um, in a town in Vermont, and he did community land trust, and he did, you know, where the community owns the land, and, and people own their houses on top of it, and worker ownership. I mean, he he did, I think, public um, public energy there, um, publicly owned energy. He did a lot that, that I really see is, is a democratic economy. You know, and the reason I call it this different different term is I'm trying to say it's it's different than, than capitalism and socialism. Is there yet a, a huge movement for this? No, there, is, there isn't. What there are are a lot of strands, people working for impact investing, people working for worker ownership and, and so on. Um, so I think the strands are there, but, but we need to knit them together. Oh, interesting. And and the people that Bernie appealed to, I found it fascinating that a lot of the people I'm I'm in New Hampshire. We have a bit of a primary here, although not this year. Uh, but uh, the same people that were attracted to Bernie, a lot of them were also attracted to Donald Trump. 
And it's interesting, isn't it? It yeah. is. And I found people of all political stri- stripes, except for the top few percent, re- recognize that, hey, the economy really isn't fair. That there is yeah. anger, which Trump dishonestly, but absolutely effectively tapped into. He tapped into that anger about an unfair economy. He did not mm-hmm. deliver. Obviously, he didn't deliver. But that feeling mm-hmm. is there all across America. And by focusing her attention on not talking about such issues and just serving the wealthy and elite and just going to private fundraisers on the East and West Coast, Hillary Clinton lost. Do you think the populist sentiment behind both Bernie and Donald Trump can be attracted to the concept of wealth supremacy? Might it have some appeal to to that particular angry crowd? You know, I I think it would, and I think it does. I mean, I'm <clears throat> I've been impressed and heartened by the response this book is getting. It's it's uh, I, I my opening um, launch event was at Aspen Institute in D.C. and we had 600 people sign up, and many more have watched it online since. And you know, that's a that's not a radical, <laughs> you know, tear down socialism or tear down capitalism. I mean, kind of organization, and yet people there are saying, you know, yes, what, what you're naming is is real, and it's time to start talking about it. So I do think people are ready to hear wealth supremacy and that that's that's what's going on. And um, so. You know, and it's interesting, Bert, when you, you know, Sheldon Whitehouse, Uh a senator, has talked about the unseen ruling class Uh in our society. And he says, you really have to trace that back to the post-1980 world. And this is when Reagan and Thatcher uh, deregulated and, you know, gave capitalism this big boost and and that's really when financialization took off and you began to have this these uber wealthy capturing democracy so i think if we can begin to see the forces that are behind the, tr- the troubling trends of our time people people will understand what's going on and i i, I think um gravitate toward this idea of, of of wealth supremacy let's let's talk about the unseen ruling class that's that's true. I, I sense there's some movement. Things happen slowly. They don't happen quickly. And unlike the, the old ruling classes that, you know, they wore a crown and they lived in, uh, you know, the czar had his place in, uh, in uh, St. Petersburg. You could see it back then. But now the ultra wealthy, the, there is an unseen ruling class. And in a way, that's more mm-hmm. dangerous, whereas mm-hmm. it's so much easier to just see who it was before. But it's not the case now. Yeah. And so what, what I talk about in the book is how this is on autopilot. I, I don't <laughs> think this is, you know, this it's not really about a few bad guys doing doing bad things and let's rein them in you know even even billionaires or ceos it's really about you know it's about fiduciary duty this idea that you you're supposed to maximize gains for shareholders it's about the idea that no amount of wealth is ever enough or the idea that only thing materiality only if it impacts capital is it material so there's these rules of the system that tell everyone how to behave and what they say is take care of capital um you know maximize the gains and don't really look at anything else and so 
you know, and so it's the system. It's it's essential rules that are the problem. I don't really blame individuals so much. Um, so, and it's this bias, this bias toward capital that that we need to see, and yeah. um, and, and to see also that there's another way to organize an economy. And you're right, people want to have some assets. You know, I don't think you know. I certainly wouldn't support you know everyone having an equal right. um wage and wearing the gray clothes of communism right. you know no people people want to have some assets they want to have some wealth but uh, and that there's nothing wrong with that but you're right i mean getting rid of the extremes i mean i think what we don't realize as a culture is how the how big the extremes are and that those extremes are built to keep growing that that that's what we need to look at yeah, who can see somebody? I mean, you can't. You can't even imagine a hundred billion dollars. I can't even imagine a bill. If someone no. can't be satisfied with say fifty million dollars, I'm sorry, that's a problem. You know, I I, I really right, think that- <laughs> right. You know, I sometimes ask myself, you know, what would happen if you know if if we could like wave a magic wand and say, all right, so the most amount of wealth some someone can have is a hundred million, right? Right. Let's just say that that's plenty, right? Yeah, yeah, that's plenty. (laughs) I don't think any of us would any of us would feel like you know you're you're poor having having a hundred million. You know, I think we would be surprised if if you Uh ran, uh, you know, a, a. you know, a spreadsheet and said, okay, nobody has more than a hundred million and the rest of that, uh, let's distribute it so that nobody has nothing. Right. Right, right now, two out of three Americans don't have a thousand dollars Bert, to fall back on. Like if you've got a car that breaks down or a kid who needs a band uniform, I mean, a thousand dollars, that's nothing. So two out of three don't have that. So what if, you know, just, as a as a thought experiment, what if you took that extreme wealth and made sure that everyone had something? I, I think people would be surprised to see how um, there's plenty of wealth there. There's plenty of assets for all of us, and, and we just need to not let it be. It's so much in so few hands. There actually is enough to go around. There really is. We've operated, you know, I don't know when this came, you know, in the year 1000 or something like that, when there was a a real shortage, but there's not a shortage anymore. There is enough to go around. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a key aspect of democracy. If you have a few exceedingly crazy wealthy people and a system that's set up just to serve them, that doesn't serve democracy. Our guest today is uh, Marjorie Kelly, who's got a new book titled Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. There's a lot to it there. And of course, we mentioned the Great Recession of 2008 and how the big banks got bailed out by our liberal uh, President uh, Barack Obama, mm-hmm. not so liberal. Mm-hmm. And there was also the COVID pandemic in 2019 and 2020. How have these crises been used as opportunities by private equity to generate more wealth for their clients and greater and more mm-hmm. serious precarity for our wider society in the process? Mm-hmm. It's a very uh, telling picture when you track the 2008 meltdown up to today, right? So we had predatory mortgages uh, often uh, on 
it's owned by people of color. And that nearly brought down the global economy. And then who got bailed out? It was the big banks who caused the crisis. They got bailed out. Meanwhile, homeowners were left to lose their homes. Um, and I'll circle back in a minute and say how we could have done that differently. But but today, Bert, guess who's buying those foreclosed properties? It's big capital. It's private equity. In Cincinnati right now, big capital has been buying uh, one out of five homes that are for sale. So these, what we're seeing is the thingification of homes. Instead mm. of being a place uh, to live and to raise your family and, and maybe get a little bit of an asset over time, no, this has become a financial asset. They're bundling houses and they're creating new financial instruments for for investors. And how do they maximize those gains for capital? By raising rents by neglecting maintenance and by being aggressive in, in pushing people out when yeah. they when they get behind on their rent. <clears throat> and yes. so let's talk about how how you can do it differently in a democratic economy. Yes. In Cincinnati, the uh the port port uh of Cincinnati, which is a a, a government financing ent- entity, stepped in and bought 200 homes. This was an auction by private equity, right? It's selling hundreds of homes all at the same time. So they, they stepped in, they bought 200 of these, they, they floated a bond in order to do it. And uh, so they've decided, we want to keep this wealth local. We want this wealth to be in broad-based hands. That's a democratic economy. So they said, we're not going to raise rents. We're going to catch up on this maintenance that's been neglected, and we're going to train renters in how to become homeowners. And so their aim is to create assets and and wealth for for everyone, for those who've been excluded. Um, and so, and they're using the power of impact investing, just simply uh, issuing a bond, in order to do it. So that's an example of how we can use the brilliance of capitalism and the tools of capitalism, but turn it toward toward the public good. It can happen. And as you say in the book, it has happened in, in various different places, in various different cities in America and different uh, countries. Uh, I, I'm guessing uh, Scandinavia probably has some things like this, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there are, are sovereign wealth funds that, um, you know, it's big investment pools owned by government, either federal government or state government, and they're investing in, in ameliorating uh, climate change or building affordable housing. So, you know, we the people have a lot of wealth uh, in pension funds and, and so on. And, you know, we could be using that to build a democratic economy and to spread to spread the wealth. And, you know, in fact, one of the things that I was involved in at the Democracy Collaborative, where, where I'm a fellow, we helped design the Fund for Employee Ownership uh, in Cleveland after we helped design the Evergreen Co-ops, and it's just a network of three worker-owned companies. Now that organization has a fund for employee ownership, and they're and they're using investor capital to go out and buy companies and convert them to employee ownership. And so, in the long run, it's employees who own that company, not not investors. And there are you know more than a dozen funds that exist uh, to do this. There's A and H Capital, which is um, exists to 
create wealth for people of color. And the way they're doing it is they're going out and buying companies that employ largely people of color, like a, like a landscaping company. Right. And, 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 um, using investor capital to convert those to worker ownership. So there are some powerful examples of how, how this can be done. And it, it is being done. It is being done. And I remember when I was in the uh, New Hampshire State Senate, there was a move to take the uh, private water company of one big city and municipalize it. And I was amazed. Uh I I said very little. I let the Republicans do the talking. I'm not a Republican. But they did it. And they were all for it. They were all for it. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. One of the places that has built a a worker-owned um, commercial laundry is uh, is in Texas. Yeah. That some some friends of ours done, and it was supported by the you know the Chamber of Commerce out there, and some banks given very favorable loans. So I think you're right. People care about their communities, and if they can do something to benefit their community, uh, you you will see uh, this this idea of community wealth building cross cross the aisle. There's a there's a movement right now in in Maine to take back. Uh, um, electricity from big investor-owned utilities and bring it into uh-huh. control control by the people. And there's a vote on that. So we can do these things, Bert, uh, if we if we get it in our head that this economy belongs to us and it ought, it ought to be designed to to benefit us. Um, there are pathways to to doing that. Yes, there are. We need. It's going to take a, a significant effort and a lot of persistence. And and you know the the unfairness has been going on quite a long time, and it's gotten a lot worse. But, it, you know, history moves in many directions at the same time, I believe. And many many people are in debt now, student loan payments. And to me, I mean, what does the term national security mean if you don't have an educated, well trained? public that's ready for the next jobs, but these mm-hmm. people are in debt. How might the erasure of debt, like projects like Debt for Nature Swaps, the Debt Collective, and, the, and RIP Medical Debt, I like that title, mm-hmm. contribute to the movement for a democratic economy? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I love this example. So one of the things we, we talked about, we need broad-based ownership. We need a great ownership transition. Yes. We also need a next system of capital. Can you have an entire system of sophisticated finance and, and lending and investing designed for the public good? Well, yes, you can. And one example of that is debt forgiveness. Now, this yes. is this is looked uh, with abhorrence by by those who who uh, you know, are working for investors and for maximum wealth of investors. You know, the idea that not all debts have to be paid is a, is a shocking idea, and but it's it's a very well tested idea <clears throat> over time. I mean, post World War II in Germany was mired in debt, and uh, there were mechanisms that most of that debt was forgiven, and it made Germany the powerhouse. It is today. Uh-huh. So yes, I mean Biden has has taken steps to forgive student loan debt, which is very very powerful. And um, you, you mentioned RIP medical debt. This is an example of how all of us can participate in this. There were a couple of of uh, loan uh, collectors who made a living. You know, they would buy bad loans. 
and uh, and then you know get on the phone and lean on people to squeeze out you know what however <laughs> however mm. many dimes mm. they could from these people mm. and they um they uh learned i think it was some occupy wall street folks who worked with them and they, they said you know you could actually forgive that debt using philanthropic Dollars and so these two loan collectors started a nonprofit, RIP Medical Debt, and there are now something like 600 churches that participate. And you can use philanthropic dollars. You go out and buy debt for maybe a dollar or two uh, for a hundred dollars, and um, you can forgive it. So for basically a dollar or two of philanthropy, you can wipe away a hundred dollars of medical debt. And um, they have forgiven billions of dollars of debt by doing this. It's a wonderful example. Again, take the tools of capitalism <laughs> and then turn it around and use them for the public good. I, I, I love that example. And of course, you know, Bernie Sanders would say, well, that's great, but then you also need a medical system that's that's owned by the public so that True. so that you don't have this uh, medical debt uh, accruing again but it, it's forgiveness of debt that's that's going to be a, a necessary and a powerful tool as we move forward boy i think so and uh, you share the story of the biden administration's debt relief plan for black farmers that was mm -hmm. ultimately stonewalled by the banks why were they against the plan and how might a genuinely democratic economy approach such an issue why is it so important that was a, a fascinating story when I looked into that. So, yeah, Biden's um, administration wanted to forgive the debt of black farmers. There's, There used to be a million farms owned by black families, and now there's about four, 40,000. So Whoa. most most black farmers have lost their land. And so is there a way to enable those who remain to keep their land and keep keep farming it. So Biden wanted to do that. Well, uh, there was, you might have read in the New York Times, there was a, a story that said white farmers sued because they thought this was racist. <clears throat> but you scratch the surface on that story and you see that the, the front group that brought these lawsuits was really a Trump, uh, a <coughs> Trump front, front group, which exists existed to sue Biden. <laughs> so maybe they, they probably found a couple of white farmers to, you know, to, to stand in there as figureheads. But this uh -huh. was really a, a Trump-led initiative. And, but then you, you go down one more layer, Bert, and you see who all else was against the loan forgiveness was bankers. Because bankers said, well, you know, we were counting on that, that loan money coming in. And, and what Biden was going to do is he was going to give those bankers Every dollar that they were owed, their entire principal would be paid back, every dollar of interest owed, plus he was going to give them 20% as a sweetener just for the bother of, of having to, um, you know, go through issuing these loans again. So there they would have been completely made whole and, and, and then some, but they, but they protested because they said, you know, we were counting on these future profits and, you know, it's, it's bothersome that we, <laughs> that we have to go out and loan the money again. So that's capital bias. What they're saying is farmers losing their land, not material, not relevant uh -huh, to us. Uh -huh. Investors being troubled by a tiny little bit, that's unacceptable. So, so that's an example of, of capital bias. Uh, the thingification, as it were. Well, there's a lot of heavy lifting to do. This is, you know, this 
interest in having a f more fair economy and having worker ownership of uh, various different things that people are affected by, uh, public municipal water supplies, things that people depend on that I would think that, you know, is a, water is a basic right, in my opinion, but mm -hmm, there are people who mm -hmm. are trying to sell that and, and turn everything into things. Going through the political system, it ain't easy. There's the politics of it. There's the whole uh, uh, judicial system that uh, has various different rules that currently favor uh, the financialization and, and, the, and what's going on now. What can people do? I'm sure there's quite a bit, and, and it's, it's not easy. It's complex. No easy answer. Sure. Well, people can start with their own investment portfolios if you're lucky enough to have one and, uh, and do, do impact investing, do local investing to the extent that you can. And you'll have to work at it a little bit because it's not as easy as just clicking on you know, a publicly traded company, but um, it's it's worth it. Begin to invest locally and and for for social and ecological impact. That's one thing. Where do you put your your um your banking assets? You know, your right. your checking account, uh, your credit card. Seek out a, a local a local bank and and bank there, or if you can find one, a cooperatively owned bank or a credit union. These are these are owned locally or they're owned by their uh, depositors uh, you can also begin to look at the assets of your institution it could be a foundation uh -huh. it could be a university it could be uh, your state uh, uh, pension fund or uh, other funds and, and say well where are those being invested institutional investors have been piling into private equity um, and so these institutional investors should be demanding accountability and transparency from from private equity and this is something that our institutions can do we can work with them uh, to begin to demand this also cities and states are doing community wealth building as a form of, uh -huh. of local economic development and uh, um, so you can work with your your, your mayor encourage them and, and educate them about what other cities are doing and how this is working we worked in Preston England which was a down and out Rust Belt city and uh, they did community wealth building and actually moved the needle on unemployment and poverty in that. This became, uh, it was named not long ago, the best place to raise a family mm. in the United United Kingdom. So you, you, community wealth building works and you can uh, encourage your community uh, to do that. Those are, those are a few things. If, you, if you're starting a company, think about selling it to workers um, over time. So there, there are a variety of things that we can do, Bert. Yes, there are, and it takes uh, it takes many many hands to uh, lighten the load, and it takes a lot of work. But this book uh, offers a lot of uh, tips on what we the people can do. The book is titled "Wealth Supremacy: How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises." Our guest has been Marjorie Kelly. There are a lot of answers in this book. Thank you so much for being with us. We're going to keep at it and keep persistent to make these things happen. It can happen. It really can. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Bert. Money. Money makes the world go around. The world go around. The world go around. Money makes the world go around. It makes the world go round. A marker in a buck or a pound. A marker in a buck or a pound. Is all that makes the world go around. The clinking, clanking sound can make the world go round.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.